Welcome to another episode of Axe with Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cat Bailey. My lovely co-host, Nadia, is not with me this week. Instead, I have a special guest here to talk to me about all things Mass Effect and also a little bit of Tormund Tides of Numenera. Yes, believe it or not, this podcast does occasionally cover Western RPGs. We, The Blood God is not just a JRPG fan. The Blood God does not just play Persona. No, we are going to be talking about Tormund Tides of Numenera and Mass Effect, and who better to do that than Rowan Kaiser, who specializes in this sort of thing. Rowan reviewed Torment Tides of Numenera for us over on the site. You can go check out his review, and he also wrote a Mass Effect essay for us, and he's just started in on Andromeda. And Rowan, I think you're also writing a book, if I'm not mistaken, about Mass Effect. How's that going? Or am I, or is that like kind of like something I shouldn't be asking about? I mean, this month is giving me more motivation to get back into it. Mm. I was hoping to have it done before Andromeda, but I ended yeah, up having to write a Game of Thrones book beforehand, and then, uh, yeah. But, yes, I am <laughs> very slowly writing a Mass Effect book and getting several pe- new pieces in Very nice. Uh, this month. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about your book really quickly? The book is called Possibility Space which is kind of a dorky title, but it ends up working really well because I think that what makes Mass Effect special is um, the gap between what it wants to do and what it's actually doing. Mm. And I think it more... This is true for most ambitious RPGs, but Mass Effect, because it's so heavily serialized and because it's so high in production value, gets a lot closer at actually succeeding and making you want to jump into its spaces and let it take you over than most of them, even though it's filled with all these very, very obvious problems. Um, And, you know, that tension between things that are obviously not quite what they should be and the player's willingness to let that go is, I think, what makes it so interesting to me. So it's not even, like, my favorite games of all time, but they're some of my favorite favorite games to write about. I, uh, let's see, we had an argument on Twitter some time ago about Mass Effect's overall significance, and I was arguing that it was significant for its time, but that it dropped off a lot of it, a lot, and you're arguing pretty heavily that Final, F- or sorry, Mass Effect is one of the like more significant games of the past 20 years. Um, I-, I think that there's room for both those arguments, but maybe we'll get into them a little bit later when we talk about the original trilogy. For now, let's talk about briefly about Torment Tides of Numenera, which unfortunately came out at kind of the worst possible time. It came out, I think, almost like baby, basically like three days before the Switch. And even though Torment and the Switch have very different audiences, I feel like it immediately got buried in the mainstream press and like kind of just, oh, and it came out, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the review embargo for Torment came up, uh, went up the same day, like maybe as Horizon Zero Dawn. Yeah, I think it was like within a day of Horizon, and also it was the the embargo was release, and release was like the second day of GDC. So I think there's probably some press attention that it could have gotten in uh, some different directions. 
Yeah, so maybe if it had come out like a month from now, uh, maybe the press would have given it a lot more attention than it ultimately got, which is kind of sad because it seemed like you really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think it's got a lot of really interesting and really competent ideas in kind of the throwback, uh, not necessarily the combat-driven throwback like a Wasteland or a Pillars, but the sort of throwback conversation-based RPG. Tyranny came out a few months ago that fits very much in that same sort of genre. Mm. Yes, Brian Fargo said that he, uh, Brian Fargo came on the podcast, uh, I think about uh, two months ago now, and he was talking a lot about how conversations to him are what drive RPGs, and he wanted to like significantly deprioritize the combat in this game, uh, much as it was in Planescape Torment. I always find it really interesting because so many RPGs put so many emph- so much emphasis on the combat systems first, with conversation being almost kind of a I mean, it's an important thing, it's an important driver of the story, but it's like a secondary consideration. But here in Torment, it's a primary consideration. Right, and it's also even merged. Like, the the combat in uh, Tides of Numenera is called a crisis, and you can have crises that are entirely about talking to people. You can have crises that are entirely about smashing robots. You can have <laughs> crises that can be resolved in both ways. You can have one that's like two parties are ready to fight and you can go and try and talk them down or you can just take a side and beat them up. Um, there's even one that's kind of a you use conversation to distract someone while you're hacking a thing on the other side of the screen, uh, which is a, probably better in theory than it is in practice but it is a really neat idea and it largely works yeah it just gets a little boring at times yeah Uh, you were saying uh, the thing that i find the most interesting about torment tides of numenera aside from you know obviously it is the spiritual successor to a very very popular and beloved rpg is that it gives you so many options um for being able to you know deal with a wide variety of uh problems Let's see if I can, like, you give, like, one really good example in your review, and I'm, like, trying to open that up right now. Um, But it it was actually pretty crazy, like, the number of options that you could actually do. But here's just an example. You got a quest that you open up an organic portal in this living city called the Bloom, right? Like, if if I'm not mistaken, the Bloom is the one with the... um, with the the monsters like the plant monsters or something like that am, am i wrong about that no that that's it's the one that we played at the preview i don't know if you actually played it or just talked to people at the preview actually but if you played it that's the that was the bloom all right but yes so the portal feeds on guilt and you can feed it a non-player character who owes you a favor or you can browbeat a party member into doing your will and taking the plunge you can convince an accused criminal to prove their innocence in front of it. You can find a crash ship's AI programmed to feel guilt about failing its passengers and take it into your head and give it to the bloom. Or you can just cut the thing open, <laughs> which I think is pretty great. I-, I like that you can go to so many different characters and be like, hey, you, why don't you go in there? Uh, cutting the thing open also requires having done a quest previously. Yeah. So it's it's uh, it's it's all these different interconnected uh, concepts that uh, it's not just like here's the thing with the cool idea and then you just pick a random side of it. It's also whether you turn left or turn right coming out of the opening screen of the uh, um, little Nihilus, little 
something like that. Hmm. Um, whether when you walk into this little town, um, if you turn right, you go into the area that has that ship AI, and that's also the area where you can charge up the sword that will let you cut through the trans-dimensional portals. If you turn left, then you go straight to the portal first, and you might not even realize that it feeds on guilt initially unless you have, like, the right set of skills. If you go straight, then you run into that criminal that you can feed to it, or you run into the, the guy who gives you the quest that says, go figure out how this portal works, or um, a, the resolution of a different quest, which is uh, a girl who, once you help her, will tell you, has the ability to tell you how these portals work. And she's also one of the ones that you can convince to feed to it. So it's not just, here's the cool thing, it's here's the cool thing that will totally change just depending on what direction you go and talk to people. Because, like, usually you're like, okay, I can solve this puzzle, I know who I can give to this thing. But if you actually, like, sit down and look at all of it, it's it's a pretty amazing combination of things that uh, make up the, the sort of quest hubs for the game. Yeah, it's great. And sadly, like, this kind of conversation, like, this kind of focus on conversation almost feels like a lost art, especially in a lot of, like, more modern AAA RPGs. Like, everybody was definitely lamenting the loss of uh, more complex conversations in Fallout 4, and you're seeing a lot of the similarities in Mass Effect Andromeda where uh, I would not like I do not pine for the return of the Paragon and Renegade system but there they did bring with them a distinct sense of consequences to a lot of your actions and that it was nice to be able to unlock like new dialogue choices and that kind of thing and that aspect is like more or less absent from Mass Effect Andromeda which is like definitely missed Whereas in Torment Tides of Numenera, like not only do you have that, but one of the things that I find really great is that the di- there are dialogue choices that you can unlock, but it's not a matter of like, oh, I put enough points into this one stat and now it is open. And by the way, if I use this, this is always going to resolve a situation favorably uh, for me. It's like, if I'm not mistaken you can put points into a, a dialogue option on the fly is that right yeah well if they're if they're things where you're like trying to convince someone yes mm-hmm. um, and this is a system that is true for most of the skills you use in the game including every time you attack in combat um, so again it's another thing where the combat and conversation and sort of general play of the game is uh, integrated but you can basically your skill point or your your attributes, which are might, speed, and intellect, are not, um, they're not like core abilities that say, you know, you have an 18 might, you're the strongest person alive. They are, you have 18 might points, and you can use these to gamble your might when you're trying to do might-based actions. And I am forgetting the term that's used for them in the game, but, um, you know, it's a skill check, but you Mm -hmm. can use these points to each one increases your chances by 20%. Mm-hmm. Um, so you t- you're talking to a guy that you're trying to intimidate, um, and the maybe the sort of background skills you have give you a 45% chance of intimidating him, but you toss in two might points, now it's an 85% chance. But that can still fail. Like, that's got a 15% chance of failing. And in most games with kind of skill checks, 
if you have an 85% chance at something and you fail and it's like a conversational option that you really want to see the answer to. Um, a lot of Obsidian games do this. Fallout New Vegas, I think, is the one that comes immediately to mind. Um, that just makes me want to reload. Like, I don't see that as a as a, like, positive end result. But when you're gambling in Torment, you're saying, I'm only putting two points to get this to 85%, so I am taking responsibility for how much of a chance I have at this. And if I didn't put it up to 100% and and I fail, that's on me. Mm-hmm. That's just on me. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also specifically in their loading screens say that failing sometimes creates more interesting states than uh, succeeding at these things. So uh, another thing that I think is important to talk about with this game is that it's not just that it's written well, it's that it's planned well and there's a lot of writing for all kinds of different possibilities. They basically put the effort into it to make stuff like skill checks failing or having six different resolutions for each quest um, they did the work it's not just oh wow this is so creative and neat it's they put in the time to make sure that this stuff all ends up you know interconnecting and uh, that reminds me of The Witcher 3 which is a game that like doesn't do anything especially new it just does all the things that it does really really well and mm. makes sure they all come together Yes, the execution um, in that game is fantastic. Yeah, so the, it it sort of seems like that, even though they're very different games in kind of scope and uh, action and amount of combat and the, their styles of exploration. But they both put in the work, and they'll they they're two of the Western RPGs that people are going to be talking about from these few years, I think, for a while. But sadly, uh, it does end a little abruptly, though, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that was my big problem with it, was that um, it's it's not quite like a Kotor... Well, it's definitely not a KOTOR 2 level of just we forgot the ending, or we <laughs> ran out of money and we're not allowed to actually end this game. Um, it's probably not even quite a Dragon Age 2 level of this is really rushed, we couldn't make everything come together, but it is really fast ending. You have like these two huge, beautiful, awesome hubs in Sagis Hills, or Sagis Cliffs, which is the first zone, then there's kind of a, a middle big climax, um, and then you have the Bloom, which is the second huge zone. And then there is another big climax, and it's done in like 45 minutes whereas you can spend like 6, 10, 12 hours exploring the bloom and it's also based on this the politics of kind of the premise of the game where there is this changing god who um, uses and discards bodies every decade or so and you are the most recent of these bodies these bodies are still alive and they're still people Um, and they're all very powerful people who have their own kind of internal politics. There's a thing called the Eternal Conflict? Mm-hmm. Uh, God, I don't think that's right. But there's a an eternal war between the Changing God's forces and his first cast-offs forces. And all the... Um, all of the cast-offs who are into kind of the cast-off community like have to pick a side or very deliberately not pick a side in this big conflict and 
at the very end, it kind of starts resolving that for you and gets into cast-off politics in a way that um, I don't think it's set up through the rest of the game very well. The rest of the game has set up kind of exploring these zones, talking to the regular people, a few of whom are cast-offs and a few of whom aren't, but in the end, it's just all this stuff that has been there but has not been prioritized, and I think it would be really interesting if it had been given more time and space to prioritize. It's the thing with uh, Torment, though, is, like, you could see, like, how, like, they were kind of tweaking it, like, heavily throughout, like, if you looked at the uh, initial, like, early access rollout, um, where a lot of people, like, had, uh, in particular, a lot of issues with the beginning and that kind of thing, which happens with a lot of games, but, like, having that process kind of in the open really lays bare like the amount of work that went into kind of kind of pulling it together into what it is like now and uh, i mean i guess at a certain point they just had to get the thing out right yeah um it's having to get it out it's also the games where your choices like all your choices matter and build on each other like ending those is really hard because you kind of have to just stop with that Mm. and that can feel really abrupt so games like dragon age 2 games like alpha protocol games like tyranny are all fairly famous for having these just kind of crashing into a wall kind of Mm -hmm. endings Mm -hmm. um and this one is probably better than most of those um maybe not tyranny but uh it's not like a super confusing ending and like why did this just happen it's like oh this is how we're doing this i guess that's fine but yeah you can also see kind of that it feels like a this has to be out the door budget kind of thing i read one article about how initially the second hub that they had planned was this kind of underwater village um that is referred to in the text of the game many times beforehand you you have these moments where you like go into other people's memories that turn into kind of a a text adventure or a, a twine game kind of thing and more than one of these takes place in this underwater village and this was supposed to be the second hub but they said in the article oh we fell in love with the idea of the bloom it fit like what we wanted to do with the game at this point and they're they're right to the bloom is a really interesting idea and really good uh hub for quests but this underwater village appears as like a single screen part of the ending that you kind of interact with vaguely in a i it's difficult to scri- to describe enough without getting into spoilers, but it's it's there. It exists. They're like we it, we had this in the initial pitch, and we decided to go a different direction. But it's still there, and you'll be happy with it. And like, if all you wanted to see was an underwater village, that's fine. But if you wanted to like hang out in the underwater village for longer than ten minutes, then it's probably going to be a disappointment. But that that sort of indicated to me just how, um, yeah, they'd run they'd run into difficulties and the ending was probably rushed because of that and uh, you know that's we talked about my book earlier that's taken years longer than i had hoped Mm -hmm. and this game takes years longer than i had hoped that is a problem that you have when you crowdfund sometimes is that you have a really good idea that kind of gets away from you and i think this did a little bit from them and uh it's forgivable in this case that's a bit of a mess at the end but when the rest of it is strong enough i think it works so looking across like pillars of eternity um tyranny 
uh, Torment Tides of Numenera and Wasteland 2, um, like kind of the most recent run of isometric RPGs, like the new wave of isometric RPGs. Like, where do you think it falls? Do you feel like it kind of is one of the stronger of the bunch, or does it fall kind of like in the middle of the pack? Where where do you see it? Um, I mean, I think... I haven't given enough time to Wasteland 2. I'd also add Divinity Original Sin. Oh, yes. Um, well, well, right, yeah, Divinity Original Sin. It's, it's a little different, but yeah, uh, it, it, I would definitely put it in there. It's technically yeah, it's, an isometric RPG. Yeah, it, it's an Ultima and not a uh, Baldur's Gate, but um, some of us prefer Ultima. Um, some of but us yeah, prefer it's, Ultima, yes. Some of us do. <laughs> um. Well, I, I think the last time you had me on was discussing my distaste for the Infinity Engine. So, uh, yeah. Um, I <laughs> yeah, think people that... responded well to that one. <laughs> oh, people. Yes. Um, I think that this is probably the one that may get the most, and perhaps because it came out at a uh, easy-to-look-over point, um, it won't get that initially, but over time I think this one might get the most kind of mainstream attention mm. as this might be how RPGs are going to look. This one might be, you know, these skill checks can be applied to an RPG of any kind of uh, perspective or um, funding class or whatever. Um, it's got... and. You know, the way that the I compared the writing to The Witcher 3, which is very clearly a different sort of RPG, but it's the sort of thing that you could say, now I see how they put all these things together. And I could do that in my game. Or I can't, because, you know, I have too much voice acting recorded and can't edit on the fly like I might need to. But uh, it, you can see kind of these structures that can be taken and made into different kinds of games. So I think it's likely to be one of the more influential among them. And I think it's it's definitely not weaker as a game than most of them. So I think it, we're, we're looking at one of the most likely to be discussed in five years of all of those. Okay, interesting. I would say that Pillars of Eternity probably has the best chance in my mind of the, being the one that is discussed in five years or whatever. But um, maybe you're right in that Torment Tides of Numenera is kind of the most forward-thinking of them where like Pillars of Eternity is more of a throwback. Uh, so there is that yeah. aspect uh, for sure. Um, by the way, like just really quickly, like give me like your 30 second opinion on tyranny. Tyranny is, I think a bunch of really interesting kind of um, peaks of obsidian's design of trying to make sure all your characters, all your factions and all your conversations and all your combats all come together in being changing the same kind of game world or making it or whatever. And I think it largely succeeds at that. It does it within the infinity engine, which I'm not the big world's biggest fan of. Um, and I might, you know, rush a little bit coming towards the end. Um, so it's a it's still an obsidian game in that it's a little janky, but I think it's got one of the best faction character choices matter ideas mm. of any game that I have seen. It's kind of like what if they didn't have to put Fallout New Vegas out six months early or whatever, right? Um, so it's 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 kind of the peak of that. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. I, I wish I had had more time to play Tyranny because. 
if I recall correctly, much like Tormentides of Numenera, kind of came out at a bad time for me. I seem to recall that it came out right on top of another big game that I was reviewing that fall. Um, might have been Final Fantasy fifteen even. So yeah. uh, it was. It, it came out in like October, so there were like ten different games that could have been. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, it just, the timing was not very good for me, unfortunately. But All right. So, Rowan, let's talk a little bit about Mass Effect Andromeda, which is out now. It came out on Tuesday as of the recording of this podcast. Um... I reviewed it. I gave it a 3 out of 5 in my review. Um, I had some pretty significant uh, problems with some of its design choices, among other things. Um, You just started it. And uh, I want to be clear, as I will say in this podcast title, uh, we're not going to do spoilers here, so you don't have to worry about anything. Like We'll outline like the basic premise of the game. Spoiler alert, they go to Andromeda. Um... And, uh, but other than that, so you have played about five hours, Rowan, and you, you've done kind of the opening hours. The opening hours um, uh, kind of got, came in for a rough time among a, a lot of like publications, like RPS in particular came down particularly hard on it. Uh, what are your thoughts as a longtime Mass Effect fan? Well, first of all, I could see why people have come down on it. The scenes when you go into the Nexus, which is the Citadel wannabe, um, are just remarkably poorly put together compared to like everything else in all three previous Mass Effects. Mm. I don't know. It's, I mean, the, you've seen the the videos of like the the opening scene when you kind of meet the director and one of the other important people, and there's like these three second pauses between every line, and yeah, it's it's bizarre that this it's it's bizarre to feel this i just replayed all three of the previous games and i there's there wasn't there was never a scene or set of scenes like that in all of them there were ones that were kind of awkward and ones that were kind of poorly written but none that just seemed to get everything wrong quite like um going into that nexus initially so i can see why people were especially down on it but other conversations are fine and Mm-hmm. Like, I think the Nexus is kind of ugly, but then I go down to the alien worlds, and the alien worlds are beautiful, mm. and I just, it's, at least the first one. I spent some time on the desert planet, which obviously is a desert, is a little less interesting than the There initial... are two desert planets. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. It's, it's the Dragon Age Inquisition of... <laughs> but there are uh... also some other planets. I mean, they, like... You know, they go pretty tropey with their planets. There's the jungle planet and the ice planet and the, uh, well, irradiated asteroid planet. Um, and some of them are great. Like, I think the ice planet is really phenomenal. And I actually also really enjoyed um, the irradiated asteroid, which is just a number to be actually. Um, but... Uh, I, I think that the initial planet is actually maybe one of the more boring of them. You you mean the the initial desert planet? Yes, Eos. Yes, because um, there's a Habitat Seven. That's this weird alien world. It's like the first time you actually get to start running around and shooting things. So. Mm-hmm. 
looks really neat. And then you go to EOS, and that's when you start driving your little Jeep around. Yes, the Nomad. Uh, but what do you think of that? Like, are you kind of in... Like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm of two minds of the Nomad, because... On the one hand, it's cool just to drive around. And I actually really am a big fan of the terrain uh, because just the really varied and interesting terrain keeps it kind of from being boring um, because you're always having to kind of negotiate around all of this, these interesting obstacles. Like getting from point A to B, point B isn't that boring. But like when I think about it, like, I mean, there's not actually that much um, on these planets. Like, you'll see you know uh you can mine a little bit um you'll run into enemy camps which are basically just bandit camps but by and large like uh otherwise it's kind of empty-ish but it's interesting because i didn't necessarily feel the emptiness if you kind of catch my drift yeah like if it if it's channeling you in the right directions if you can get what you want out of going into these directions then maybe it won't feel that empty or if you only have to go the once then you know it it doesn't necessarily but if if it's a thing where you end up going in the same directions over and over driving around in circles or backtracking or so on that's the sort of thing that can feel extra empty over time right um the thing that i am worried about as i have just found the crafting systems and so on is how the item itemization and progression in that direction works because it's throwing a bunch of stuff at me and I'm not sure what's most important. I'm not sure mm-hmm. if I should be mining the hell out of everything I see. Um, Here's the deal. the uh, Each planet has kind of specific minerals um, and you kind of have to visit them all to be able to get what you want. So I had a ton of, like I had a ton of minerals, right? Like, I didn't even have to, like, go scanning around very much. Um, Most of the time, I would arrive in a system, I would scan, there would be an artifact, I would go to it. Uh, Often, the artifact in just a system would give me a bunch of good stuff. But it wasn't until the latter half of the game that I was really able to craft anything, because I was always missing one thing. And it was really annoying, actually. Um, and finally, I went to uh, the irradiated asteroid that I was just mentioning, and it gave me everything I needed for the stupid Milky Way stuff. And I was like, oh, thank God, finally. But of course, by that time, I had already been able to um, like find a lot of stuff uh, just from loot yeah. and that kind of thing. So it wasn't as interesting. Um, I, I think probably the most interesting aspect of the crafting system is are the augmentations, which you can use to kind of change the nature of the weapons um, into like more of explosive kind of stuff or turn them into um, like an energy, like lightning beam or into like just a straight up like energy weapon, which is actually kind of weak, but I digress. Um, so I think maybe just the balance and the pacing of the crafting system is a little bit off. Yeah, this is one of my problems with Dragon Age Inquisition, was that it actually had one of the better crafting systems that I have seen in an RPG. I am generally opposed to crafting systems, but it also had a weird thing where you could buy your loot or you could find your loot, and figuring out exactly like which one you were supposed to be focusing on in order to get your characters in the best position was 
not exactly confusing or apparent or not exactly apparent and was quite rather confusing and andromeda i'm sort of getting that feeling that if i can buy the weapons and have to research and craft the weapons and do all those things um i it makes it hard to figure out what the focus should be but what you say about how each planet has something makes it seem like they have kind of put together an idea of how to go about doing all of these uh, uh, itemization progression. Mm-hmm. They just might not tell you. Mm-hmm. It, it's, um, it's, a, it's a little opaque. Um, there's a lot going on, but then you kind of realize, like later in the game, and I alluded to this in, the inter- in, in my review, or described this in my review, that there's a lot going on, but if you think about it for like half a second, you realize it's not actually that deep at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, does it do the Bioware thing where once you do the kind of initial pseudo-tutorial planet, then you can go to any of the others, or is the progression linear? Uh, it's it's a bit more gated. Um, what happens is uh, it opens up a couple more planets, and you can choose where you want to go. Um, and then, but you can, I believe, like just kind of like leave the planet and go to either one. But the main point is that you complete... Uh, like one of the fairly majorish quests that it gives to you, and that kind of opens up um, a bit more, and you can go to other planets. And uh, as and it, it was, it's around this time that you'll just kind of get a whole slew of like quests from your your uh, crew members uh, from the Nexus that you know around that kind of thing. And the next thing you know, like, you're kind of, like, jaunting all over the Helios cluster and just doing a lot of stuff. And actually, my favorite thing about Mass Effect Andromeda is that there's... I, I think that the the side quests actually feel fairly substantial um, because a lot of them are actual quest chains. Um, and they're heavily story driven rather than go fetch the thing kind of driven which kept me kind of invested in them and and i think uh actually the loyalty missions work pretty well um in particular um it really seems like the designers kind of cut loose in particular with the the encounter designs and that kind of thing so um unfortunately like i kind of had to just keep pressing on to actually finish the game and i found the main quest very weak at the end of the day but I think that if you are just kind of taking your time and being leisurely about it, you can have a fair amount of fun just like getting lost down the rabbit holes of doing these individual quests. Um, Some of which are in a way almost like think pieces of like, well, okay, you're in the Andromeda cluster and like you've been on the road for 600 years and what would happen if this happened or what would happen if that happened or let's talk let's talk about these to these people these crazy people about why they decided to come out here and as a sci-fi nerd i'm like oh that's kind of interesting one of the things that i have noticed in terms of the story is that while i'm seeing what you and other people have complained about that andromeda andromeda itself is not particularly alien Mm. in a way that they could have done um the kind of pioneer mentality and the motivations of the characters kind of the internal drive that has people out in andromeda is pretty motivating and well put together in most cases so i think that it's 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 getting that half of the sci-fi nerd itch scratched for me but it's not necessarily getting the uh 
here's everything we could possibly have done with this new galaxy. Like, I mean, I just look at the premise and you could have like a, a Star Trek Voyager, a Battlestar Galactica style thing where you're on the run from a totally hostile universe. Or you could just find a totally new and weird and diverse universe that's like the original Mass Effect, but with a bunch of new aliens. But they just kind of split the myth middle with that. Then it's not terribly exciting. Yeah, I almost wish that the humans had been the only ones to set out for this new galaxy with maybe yeah. like you know, a Turian and an Asari and a Krogan rather than all of them. Um, Because the old races dominate the story in a lot of respects, like to the uh, exclusion almost of the new guys. Like the new guys aren't interesting at all. Like I barely even thought about the Angarans. Um, It's kind of the worst of both worlds, to be honest. Like on the one hand, I, I wouldn't have minded them like discovering a totally alien, totally different like a, a race that is totally inscrutable and you can't really figure out what the heck they are but they are trying to kill you and you're like and trying to figure out like what the heck is going on with them uh or barring that you know like i wouldn't have minded walking right into a fully established ecosystem with like existing rivalries and you can kind of un- like maybe having a lot more of a gray area going on with the races that you're discovering and them going, oh, we have a wild card here in our existing conflicts. Well, uh, you can come join with us. No, 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 come join with us. And you're like trying to figure out, it's like, oh crap, do I like throw off the balance of power in this entire like area that I just kind of walked into, or do I like, or do I try to split the difference and then have them both hate me? Like, I think, I think that with a bit of like maybe time and also creativity, uh, that it could have been a lot more interesting but ultimately it wasn't I mean it's it's possible that they could move that direction in the sequels if they hear enough from us like this one seems to be very specifically focused on one part of the galaxy and I don't know maybe they maybe they can figure something out because it has a relatively limited scope they can kind of flip things on their head after all that is sort of the tradition in the series to do with the second game that would be nice um especially because it feels like there's a huge amount of room to grow um like what they show is so kind of limited uh that it just feels like okay well great like this is like one tiny like aspect and as i already like said the milky way races and like their dynamics end up completely subsuming like anything that's really interesting about the andromeda galaxy um, so I, I would like them if they do make a sequel and they do kind of double down on the setting, which I imagine they would, I don't know why they wouldn't. I would hope that they would go a lot more into depth into the new setting than they did in this initial go round. Um, one thing that you mentioned briefly was that having the time to go into all the side quests and stuff was actually good and um, I've seen a bunch of people complaining about the embargo on this sucker so Mm. uh, maybe with it out in the wild and everyone able to look at every part of it instead of just that ugly ass nexus Mm -hmm. um, people will sort of turn in a more positive direction I don't know all people are doing right now like I'm like looking on the various subreddits and like social media and stuff and literally all people are doing are posting awkward like animations and stuff 
Yeah, the animations are occasionally an issue. There are some characters whose faces just don't seem to be on their bodies right. <laughs> They're always looking in the wrong direction, and it's really off-putting. Like, I, I can see why people are upset about that. Like, I'm sort of getting enough of a science fiction um, nerd push that I can look past it for now, but... Um, this is one of the things with the original trilogy is that I was able to do that with all three games up until the very, very end of it. But there are a bunch of points where people fell off that um, willingness to suspend their disbelief. With, um, in Mass Effect 1, whether it was the JKS combat, Mass Effect 2, whether it was the sudden turn into um, Gears of War and Darkness or the crazy boss at the end or Mass Effect 3's ending or the the beginning is also not terribly good but there's usually something about each of them that would make some people fall off that they will not stop arguing about mm-hmm. um, and there are probably a lot more places where they can fall off at least in the initial part of Andromeda and that's weird because in some ways it feels like this is a sequel to Mass Effect 1 and not 2 and 3 a little bit um, yeah uh, like they're definitely I think that they had in their mind to be like, well, everybody always said that Mass Effect 1 was a very interesting but also very flawed game, so maybe we can, like, kind of make good on that promise. Like, that was one of their, like, big talking points was, like, we are, like, making good on the promise of Mass Effect 1. But They made it extra flawed and extra interesting, I guess. Well, that's the thing. It's like, like when I look back on Mass Effect 1, like, uh, if you haven't already, like, um, uh, to those people who are listening, like, you should go check out uh, the three essays that we posted on each of the three games, um, we have one for one, two, one for two, and one for three. The The last one was written by Rowan, um, by the way. Um, and, like, Doc was talking a lot about a lot about the kind of interesting things that Mass Effect 1 does. And I actually found myself thinking a lot about Mass Effect 1 as well while playing Andromeda. And I was kind of lamenting that there's just nothing as interesting, for example as the kind of the final battle of the original Mass Effect where you're battling on the outside of the Citadel and meanwhile there's a space battle going on around you and uh, like you have a choice that you can essentially like wipe out the alien console uh, and then you can make the bad guy shoot himself in the head with like a speech check and there's just like so much going on and there's some like interesting thematic stuff and yeah in some respects it's boilerplate sci-fi but it just feels so much more i don't know it feels smarter (laughs) than what andromeda does which i'm i mean it honestly feels a little bit like star trek voyager (laughs) yeah that that's the downside of uh the trying something new is sometimes you try something a a little more new than your writers can handle Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think that uh, this is a discussion we had on Twitter a little bit is that one of the really exciting things about Mass Effect 1 was the way it directly engaged with classic science fiction literature to me mm-hmm. like it opens with like here's a giant homage to um, Star Tide Rising and then there are very specific moments that go into like Hyperion and Grass these are some classic science fiction literature from the 80s that you should check out um and I, in all the discussions of Andromeda, I'm not seeing like things that people are talking about that 
kind of connects Andromeda to this classic science fiction that allows me to, well, it allows the writers to kind of say, we know this works. We know this story is something that we can get right because other people have gotten it right. Um, for example, the Thorian on um, Pharos, the sort of giant plant that undergirds the, this entire world um, and can psychologically control the ecosystem above it is sort of the premise of the novel Grass by Sherry S. Tepper. It's a really good book. And it's like, when I, when that clicked for me, oh, they're doing that here. It's like, oh, each of these little stories is a different vignette that takes on a different thing and from a story that works. And, you know, that all comes together. And when I look at Andromeda, I see mostly people comparing it to previous Mass Effects. So it's like their influences are the thing they did that was influenced by other people, but it's not necessarily the other influences that maybe don't appear in visual science fiction all that often. Um, and I asked you about this, and your your response was a little underwhelming to me. Yeah, you know, Prometheus and Interstellar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it definitely... I got that impression, and it sort of feels like increasingly Bioware has been going back to the well um, in terms of like kind of more popular like uh stuff like i saw a lot of in dragon age inquisition for example it sure felt like they were borrowing heavily from uh game of thrones the tv show and skyrim yeah but it wasn't necessarily the interesting stuff from game of thrones in the way that the first dragon age which Mm -hmm. um which came up before was released before the tv show so it was based on the novel the show's in the works not based on the novels yeah um, so it was sort of running parallel to the show in terms of when it might have been developed and conceived and so on. And it's taking the interesting things about like the subversion of norms of how stories should work that Game of Thrones did so well uh, by killing the heroic character at the beginning and then everyone has, has to pick up the pieces after that. And that was what kind of gave it energy and Inquisition was more, you know, within this already existing fantasy thing that didn't necessarily want to upset too much. And that's the thing with Andromeda is that w- I was talking about how the original races like the Krogan and the Turians and the Asari like kind of overwhelm everything. A- and I think that that's because like they have a really like great established foundation. And if, if anything, if it, if this did anything to, if this impressed anything on me, it was that the dynamics between these races are generally very interesting. The conflicts between these races are generally very interesting. And while they don't really do anything new with them, like, at all, like, the Krogan are still cranky, you know, the Asari are still kind of space elves, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, like, there's no, like, particularly interesting bit of world building. Like, it, it did impress upon me that even though it's kind of, you know, standard science fiction. In a lot of ways, Mass Effect was so executed so well that it became the more than the sum of its parts. Yeah, um, and some of this is... I'm kind of hoping to write about this, though I'm not sure if I will manage to get it published somewhere. Some of it is just, like, accidental. Um, when I go back to Mass Effect 1, and I'm, like, having these initial conversations with uh, Tally and Rex, who kind of stand in for the Quarians and the Krogan, who eventually become the most interesting part of that universe. Yes. Um, 
a lot of what is interesting about them seems to be just like the writers said, okay, you have to go talk to these characters and they'll tell you about their people. Why are their people the way they are? Here are the dialogue responses that they get to that. And then those dialogue responses that, you know, you can get done in five minutes, but they're also an interesting kind of science fiction progression. Why is Tally in the suit? Why is Rex so cranky? Why haven't the Krogan taken over the galaxy, given how strong Mm -hmm. Rex is? Um, those responses to just kind of what are these things why are they here uh become the centerpieces of mass effect 3 these grand climactic resolutions that are the best part of that game and it's just kind of a we are giving the time and weight and attention to these things over time over the course of three games serializing that in a way that even if it's kind of boring initially which i'm not sure is the case with those two but might have been the case with like the asari and the turians uh will eventually become some kind of interesting just because they've put the time and energy into it and andromeda feels a little like they're taking that as a shortcut yeah um well i mean they do some things with the Angara that I should say that they... It's an interesting premise. Uh, I will say what they do with the Angara. Um, but I sort of feel like it is only introduced. It is not really thoroughly explored. And I expect that it might be explored in a sequel at some point. Um, yeah, like it would be a lot more interesting if they went a lot more into kind of depth in it. Um, and that is kind of where I feel like some of the influences I was referring to earlier um, came into play. But like I said, it is so lightly touched upon that it in a way almost feels insignificant. And actually, <laughs> the main quest is actually kind of brief. Um, I was talking to our guides person uh, the other day and he was like, oh God, yeah, I got so much more to play. Like, I'm here. And I'm like, oh, you're almost done. He's like, what? <laughs> that could happen I, I felt that with Inquisition too where it, it felt like it climaxed at like five ten hours in and then the rest of it was just kind of picking up the pieces mm. but this is kind of an issue with Bioware games generally is that they've they've sort of struggled to have a strong overall conventional narrative arc in many if not most of their games I mean, Mass Effect um, 2 had an excellent uh, arc for the most part Mass Effect 2 was there were like four plot missions like <laughs> yeah the, but... the rest of it is all collecting characters and then doing their loyalty yes. quests which is a really interesting yes, structure exactly don't get me wrong yeah. but if you're saying what is the plot of mass effect 2 the plot of mass effect 2 is you find out who the collectors are you get some stuff that lets you attack the collectors you attack the collectors but it all culminates That's so luck. well and i mean and yeah. you're being really reductive there like i mean it also like a huge part of it is your like unexpected relationship with the with cerberus and like how they like brought you back to life and all that stuff like there there is I, I, that component th- as there's well. a bunch of cool stuff around it mm-hmm. the, 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 i i am pro mass effect too like i'm not a, i'm not saying that the plot is bad or whatever i'm just saying that bioware in general tends to structure their games in ways where the overarching plot is not necessarily the thing that drives you mm-hmm. um with mass effect one i think it is mass effect one is maybe the only one that actually has a villain um hmm. yeah with uh, uh dragon age inquisition uh, had a villain <laughs> mass effect Kinda. andromeda also has a villain yeah, but uh, 
Saren keeps trying to do things as you're playing Mass Effect 1. Dragon Age Inquisition, Corypheus is just kind of there after he destroys your initial base. Sure. It's just like, if we do these things, we beat Corypheus. We do these things, we beat Corypheus. Where Saren is kind of pushing things forward. And even going back, something like Baldur's Gate 2 is... You know, it's about the city that you're in and kind of figuring out what's going on in that city more than it is necessarily... I have to do all these main quest missions in order to do the next thing. Um, and that's fine. I think that's an interesting thing. Like, the conventional Bioware thing is having, you know, you have one big quest that kind of gets your main story going, and then you have four hubs that you go to, each of which has a side story that kind of channels into the main story, but those side stories may be more interesting than the main story. Um, like I was talking about Mass Effect 1 as an example of this. Each of those side stories kind of refers to a classic bit of science fiction, and uh, they all stand on their own relatively well, but they also add a little piece to the chasing Saren down puzzle. Um, it's very rarely kind of a linear we go here, we do this, very strong story. Mass Effect 3 did have that. Mass Effect 3 did have a strong main plot. Um, but most of the rest don't. And that's fine. That's cool. It's it's good in RPGs to have that openness sometimes. I suppose the last question I'm going to ask is, oh, we've had the benefit, I mean, I think Mass Effect 3 came out five years ago now. Um, yeah. We've had the benefit of kind of distance uh, from the trilogy. Um, like, looking back on it, uh, do you feel like it's kind of held up? And, like, uh, has your opinion on it changed now that you had a chance to kind of replay it, like uh, games have kind of progressed, that kind of thing? Um, I think Mass Effect 1 is increasingly difficult. It was always kind of difficult to get into the inventory system and the unbalanced combat are real pains a lot of the time. Um, I wrote a piece suggesting that if you want to try to get into the trilogy, start with Mass Effect 2. If you fall in love with the setting, then go back and play Mass Effect 1, because that's what'll get you through. Uh, if you don't fall in love with the setting, then I'm not sure why you would keep playing, but you can keep playing Mass Effect 2 if you want to be fine. Um, as as a kind of storytelling vehicle, Mass Effect 1 is still quite good, but it's it's just that inventory system and that combat are so janky that um, I, I just can't recommend bashing your head on it unless you have a very specific motivation to want to do that. I mean, uh, there's the PC version in mods. Don't know what sorts of combat mods there are that might help, but if there are good ones, then that's probably recommendable. <laughs> uh, I used the uh, shiny up mods to make all the faces all HD and stuff, mm -hmm. uh, but I did not check out any sorts of combat mods. I remember when the original Mass Effect came out, like, looking at those people and going, oh my god, they look just like real people. Like, I can't tell, I can't tell the difference. <laughs> uh, and now maybe it's not quite the case, like, Andromeda has notably poor character models. And Andromeda is weird because it's, like, half cartoonish, half realistic. It's a... I don't know. This is increasingly a I'm thing with Bioware. Like, I don't know what the heck is going on with their art style. Like, they they had a really hard time finding a good art style for Dragon Age. I don't know. 
<laughs> maybe I'll I'll come up with a stronger theory once I play more of Andromeda. But like when I was clicking through the multiplayer characters to check all of them out, see which you know classes and races they added in. Um, I just thought how much stronger the Mass Effect Three classes just like looked on the selection screen mm-hmm. um, versus the kind of three D models that they had that are they look nice and they look like competent and effective but i don't get the same sort of awesome i have a fortune soldier here who can set people on fire and like i can get that feeling just from looking at the icon they've put on the selection screen versus the full 3d model of a an armored krogan of course it's an armored krogan and i don't know it's it's something that i will get used to and then either argue with or not at some point oh this is something that I noticed that I haven't seen people talk about in their Andromeda reviews is the music. Um, Mm. I haven't really noticed the music of Andromeda. I mean, it sounds like Mass Effect, but it did not stand out to me in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, but it, it sounds like Mass Effect without standing out is like most of the Mass Effect music does stand out. Yes. Or maybe not most of it, but significant. Well, it has that. I mean, it's faithful to the Mass Effect music, right? Uh, yeah. But yeah, you know, you're right. Um, when I was writing my my essay about the my essay about the Mass Effect Two uh, suicide mission, I watched the entirety of it like again on YouTube, and that is the music. Yeah, oh my God, like the music was so intense. Like from the moment that you are you go through that the the you go through the Omega uh, the Omega Four relay or whatever, and you're like really tense you're like oh man here we go here we go what am i gonna find what am i gonna find and then you get to the end of it and like the the way that the ambient music changes like perfectly to emphasize like the fear and the mystery of the space that you're in like it's just so perfect but then you know it ramps up again really quickly during the action sequences as you're being chased um to the collector base and then from that point on like they basically hit the accelerator and don't stop i mean Oh God, so good! Yeah, it's uh, and this is just as a side note. One of the reasons I think Mass Effect Two is the most generally beloved is that um, it starts and ends really, really well. Really, like, a well. lot of the stuff in the middle is not terribly well designed. <laughs> That's all um, people remember is the beginning and the end. Right. Whereas Mass Effect Three, the beginning and the end are easily the worst parts. Yes, I know. Mass and, Effect Three like actually kind of bored the heck out of me at the beginning. Yeah, the the sequence on Earth is just a bunch of cliches and boredom just thrown at the wall and um, helps set up just with it, a lot of the mistakes that the ending makes, which we don't have to go into, but we can if you really want. Um, but uh, yeah, like this is something that I also noticed with Inquisition was that it kind of it had a really strong main theme. The scene with the people all singing the hymn that's the main theme is was really good. But apart from that, I can't remember the music at all. And then there's a point when you run into your old character from Dragon Age Two mm-hmm. that the Dragon Age Two music kicks in, and I'm just like, oh my god, this is so much better! Immediately gives me all the emotions that I'm not getting from the rest of Inquisition, and I'm wondering, and I've, I'm kind of getting that feeling from what I've heard of Andromeda's music, mm-hmm. which is that it's it sounds like Mass Effect music, but it's not trying to be in any way 
strongly melodic or intrusive. Mm -hmm. Um, It's sort of following the kind of film music trend of the last decade or two where you don't have these big, huge, dramatic themes. You have just kind of incidental background music that goes along with what you're supposed to be thinking. Yep, I hate it. Because so much of my favorite media, like, that I just, like, stands out strongly in my mind, it's because of the music. Like, when the music starts... I know that something is going to happen, right? Like, I was watching Star Trek Two the other day. Oh my god, James Horner's uh, soundtrack in that uh, movie was, like, un- uh, unbelievable. And then right after that, like, Ratatouille uh, came on. The soundtrack on that movie is unbelievable. I I really, and I, I don't think it's any coincidence that most of my favorite games have just phenomenal soundtracks. So it's, I do not like... I do not like when game the the games have pursued this. Well, let's just have this kind of really quiet, like in the background, film score kind of approach. Yeah, I, I, especially with the Bioware game, mm-hmm. um, or any kind of grand RPG. Like when I talk about that possibility space thing, one of the things that gets people into motivated to do that is music that gets them in the mood to do it. It the with the Mass Effect one, you had that really cool spacey, upbeat soundtrack that was just like felt exactly right for the kind of this is a really cool galaxy for you to explore. Mass Effect two had this big bombastic dramatic music and the big bombastic dramatic scenes, and that worked really well too. And Mass Effect three, this is part of what I wrote about. I didn't include the music in this, but it probably should have. Um, is that it? It got the music right when it needed to. Um, it it really hit like okay here is the sad scenes here are the upbeat scenes and uh i think the technology they were using to have the music come in and out at exactly the right points uh you know was kind of perfected in mass effect 3 and then and the andromeda i just haven't noticed the music yet except when i sit down and say i'm going to listen to this music and like the uh exploring the galaxy theme is almost exactly the same as the exploring the galaxy theme in mass effect 1 except it's quieter and subtler and i don't necessarily want quieter and subtler in my big bombastic rpgs indeed yeah and mass effect andromeda like certainly has its moments where you feel like it should be a lot more bombastic but geez at at the end of the day like i just there are a lot of like little problems i have with that game that really pile up um i was playing it yesterday uh like i was like completing a whole bunch of the side quests just to help our guides people out and I all of the vault stuff I hate. Like I hate everything to do with activating those, like getting the glyphs from those stupid monoliths. Uh, yeah, I, I did that for the first time. Like right as the last thing I did l- last night mm-hmm. was not a huge fan. I like Sudoku, but yeah, no, that was. But I mean, that's not the way I like. I can Sudoku. do a Sudoku. It's fine, but like all of the crap around it is so boring. Like collecting the glyphs completing the sudoku going to the next damn monolith going into the vault completing a lot of very gamey very like unimaginative puzzles that don't require a lot of thought they're just you know kind of there they're there to be time consuming and it's just it's it's a real step back in my opinion and a lot of the combat like a lot of the combat itself feels mostly okay like not amazing but fine like in mass effect terms but the encounter spaces are so underwhelming like especially the way that they handle cover is straight out of 2010 
Like it, it's not super great, and the enemies get really repetitive, like really, 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 really repetitive. And it does a thing I hate where it'll introduce an enemy uh, as a boss, but then they'll start like uh, recycling that boss over and over again. It's just a rando enemy. Ugh. Do not like. Do not like. Not a fan of that. No. Hmm. Um, Especially when that use... boss is like particularly annoying to take down as the is the case with this boss i think that if the boss is like at least really interesting and is introduced in an effective way it could be a lot better but most of the time it does not work and because especially if it's the kind of boss where you have to take down a particular thing to be able to access its weak point to shoot the thing and do the thing which is the case like if it's just a really strong I'm having a one-on-one battle with this like elite enemy. I think that can work a lot better. But in the cases where, as I described, you're doing like very specific step-by-step things, and you're in the middle of a firefight, it's just a pain in the ass. It's not actually compelling. Yeah, I, I think the whole jumping around thing probably makes it really hard to design interesting levels. Like it's a it's a cool feeling to jump around, land, smash a guy, whatever. Mm. But it's. Uh, you don't get that sort of methodical take the enemies out while you're avoiding being flanked thing that you got from Mass Effect 3 specifically. Um, it it feels like it's kind of leaning into how Mass Effect 3's multiplayer felt like after a few months where you had people who knew exactly how everything worked and had the most powerful weapons and would just run around and zap things in the the right place all the time and it feels like they made this combat kind of for those people as opposed to the you know sit down take cover work your way through things very tactical kind of cover uh combat system that it could be in mass effect 2 and especially 3 um one of the things you were saying before the combat, I think, struck me is all this kind of very gamey BS that uh, I haven't encountered that much, but I have seen enough to think that you are probably right about it. Um, as to how Mass Effect 3 streamlined the game to not have that gamey BS. Uh, it was like... This is what I was talking about when I meant that I mentioned that... Uh, this felt like a sequel to Mass Effect 1 and not Mass Effect 3, is that like when you get into conversations with people, they're very slow-paced, I-need-to-ask-you-everything conversations, as opposed to uh, Mass Effect 3's kind of streamlined, alright, you, you're just having a quick little bit of banter with this person. Um, you, you know, you, once you've done those things, then you're, you're, you're back in Sorry, that was going nowhere. Um, once you've kind of gotten your investigation out of the way, where you, you know, how have you been? What has happened in the two years that I have been in prison? Blah, blah, blah. Then every conversation you have with a person is kind of just walk up and they, you know, mention something about the last mission where this seems to be more. And, you know, again, I haven't spent too much time on the Tempest. So maybe that has this done better. But when I walk through the Nexus, it feels like Mass Effect 1, where I, every person I talk to, I get their life story, <laughs> you know, one combat or one conversation selection at a time. And uh, Mass Effect 3 streamlined the whole planetary scanning thing where you're just. 
uh, you're mostly trying to avoid the Reapers and grab one thing off each planet, and this one is a much slower planetary scanning system. There's still only one thing on the planets, it seems like, which is good, but it seems like it's very deliberately being deliberate about re-adding these kind of exploration and conversation things that were in Mass Effect 3, we're like, we know exactly the game we're doing. We're doing this big war epic, and this is we're just doing like, a, we're doing yeah, a, a big action-packed war a very war slow epic. RPG that we don't necessarily know if all this fits together when Mass Effect 3 was like, this fits together. This is how it fits together. We know what we're doing. Um, yeah. And The thing with the planetary that, scanning that drives me kind of crazy is that it just it takes so long to go from one planet to another. <laughs> one thing I liked about Mass Effect 2 was that you you know, you would go into warp speed, like you would go into warp space or whatever, um, and you would see like a really cool shot, if I recall correctly, of um, uh, the Normandy, the second Normandy, like like going through the the Mass Effect relay, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. um, and it always looked really cool, right? And it lent the game a sense of momentum that is simply absent when you're traveling from planet to planet in Andromeda, because it'll like you'll go to a place it'll zoom out and then you'll like click over and you'll like select a place uh to scan and then it'll go back to where you are zoom in but then zoom back out and then slowly pan over to the other one and then you can do the whole damn process again and it made me completely allergic to scanning anything for the entire game I, it's not quite that slow but it is the the sum of its parts ends up being slow. It's a it's pretty fast from one planet to another, but you're still doing it every time you go from one planet uh-huh. to another. And yeah, it's a it's a weird decision. I can kind of see what they're sort of trying to do. Like it reminds me a little bit of the Mako in Mass Effect One, which is it's like yeah, you're spending a lot of time driving to nowhere and but it's kind of saying here is the grand scope of the galaxy as you're doing that but this feels worse because you're not actually driving you're just kind of watching a pseudo cutscene that shows how pretty their planets are and okay you made a nice star system but you know I can see nice star systems in a ton of you know strategy games or whatever that you can go and click on each planet and look at it and uh, it's it's the sort of thing that I expect might be patched out. Um, hmm. And maybe like a lot of things from Dragon Age 2 that people complained about in reviews and were patched out, you know, three months later that everyone who com- came to later found a much better game. Uh, there might have something like that happen with Andromeda, but I... Yeah, I well, maybe you should release a complete game uh, when it comes time to review and people won't remember your, all the crap that you end up patching out later. But, uh, yeah, that's uh, some of our thoughts on Mass Effect Andromeda. Um, You can go read my review over on the site. Um, And uh, maybe we'll do more of a spoiler cast on it later. Uh, We never got around to doing our Final Fantasy XV spoiler cast, uh, probably because we got busy. But, you know, we're going to have a couple months coming up here where things slow down a little bit. So in between our Persona 4 Golden and Persona 5 and God knows whatever else we're talking about, Final Fantasy 14 discussions, we might have a little time to dive a bit deeper into why exactly Mass Effect Andromeda's story really does not work. Uh, But in any case, 
this has been a U.S. Gamer Podcast. Acts of the Blood God can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Um, go and subscribe, rate, review us. Uh, if you really enjoy the podcast, tell us why you like us. And, we, I mean, every like positive review will make us a little bit more visible and the blood got just that much happier um of course you can follow me on twitter at the underscore catbot. you can follow nadia on twitter at, at nadia oxford and rowan you're at uh was it rowan kaiser or is it something else yep it's at rowan kaiser all right yeah uh, rowan has many uh strong opinions about things especially rpgs and if you're an rpg rpg aficionado i strongly recommend that you go follow his work um and cats yes and cats um rowan where where can we find you these days um i am currently doing a piece for polygon i also doing some pieces for zam lately done a couple for you those those are the three where it seems to be happening at the moment um i am sort of having finished the book getting back into publishing pieces more regularly and we'll see where that takes me excellent and the book is about game of thrones um which i mean if you're a fan of the series rowan seems to know a lot about game of thrones so you should check it out and i'm looking forward to your mass effect book um when it gets done having never written a book myself and being horribly intimidated by the process i can totally imagine it's i can totally understand how you get like completely bogged down and everything so yeah i would i would also definitely not recommend it while you are a editor-in-chief oh god no i i don't need to toss a third job onto the pile this is not an instance where i would be throwing it on the pile as it were um but let's see next week i think that we will be circling back on some of the topics that we've already been covered uh let's see persona 5 like we might be able to talk a, a little bit about persona 5 next week so that could be fun uh, Persona 5 is coming up rather rapidly. So, in any case, uh, I've been Cat Bailey. Thanks for listening. Um, and for Rowan and myself, we'll see you again next time. And until then, happy adventuring. <laughs>